Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the newspapers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Zionism. This is in the Jerusalem Post. Iran's Ayatollah claims wealthy Zionists control America. Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini on Tuesday claimed wealthy Zionists control America. America has reached the peak of arrogance, he said, and it is controlled by corporate owners, which makes it a manifestation of oppression abhorred by the world, Khomeini said in a tweet. Attacking Zionists is the Iranian regime's usual rhetoric, but claiming that Zionists control America is intended to push anti-Semitic conspiracy theories while hiding behind its official anti-Israeli line, says this article. The official slogan of some of Iran's allies, such as the Houthis in Yemen, is death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews. Well, Saudi Arabia, which is owned by the same cult which owns Israel, is destroying Yemen. The article continues. Khomeini wrote the tweet as part of Iran's commemoration of the US killing of IRG Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani. The Iranian leader has slammed Jews before. He claims the US deal of the century is satanic and that it includes the Jewishization of Jerusalem. On February the 8th, he tweeted... Banu Nadir Jews. Quran says that God struck the enemies a blow from where they didn't expect it. He connected this blow against the Jews with recent Iranian actions. The Banu Nadir was a Jewish tribe in Arabia at the time of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Last year, the Ayatollah said Iran is not anti-Semitic and that Jews live safely in Iran. In June 2019, he contrasted Iran's treatment of Jews with certain old Arab leaders who believe Jews should be thrown into the sea. He says Iran is only opposed to the Zionist regime. Well, wealthy Zionists do control America on a staggering scale. In episode 62, I talk about the elite Zionist, or ultra-Zionist as some people call it, control of American politics, naming names from the Trump administration, the Obama administration, and the Clinton election campaign. The number of Zionists is stunning, and that's just in politics. In the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, available soon, I detail many of the connections of Silicon Valley to the military intelligence network, which is owned by what I call elite Zionists political, corporate, military, intelligent Zionists to distinguish from regular Zionism. And here's an article in the LA Times, Los Angeles Times, which talks about the Zionist control of Hollywood, written by a Jewish writer. He says, a guy called Joel Steen, from December 2008, he says, I have never been so upset by a poll in my life. I have never been so upset by a poll in my life. Only 22% of Americans now believe the movie and television industries are pretty much run by Jews, down from nearly 50% in 1964. The Anti-Defamation League, which released the poll results last month, sees in these numbers a victory against stereotyping. Actually, it just shows how dumb America has gotten. Jews totally run Hollywood. This is a Jewish guy saying this, remember. How deeply Jewish is Hollywood? When the studio chiefs took out a four-page ad in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago to demand that the Screen Actors Guild settle its contract, the open letter was signed by News Corp President Peter Shernin, Jewish, Paramount Pictures Chairman Brad Gray, Jewish, Walt Disney, Company Chief Executive Robert Iger, Jewish. Sony Pictures Chairman Michael Linton, surprise, Dutch Jew. Warner Brothers Chairman Barry Meyer, Jewish. CBS Corps Chief Executive Leslie Moonves, so Jewish his great uncle was the first Prime Minister of Israel. MGM Chairman Harry Sloan, Jewish. And NBC Universal Chief Executive Jeff Zucker, mega Jewish. If either of the Weinstein brothers had signed, this group would have not only the power to shut down all film production, but to form a minion with enough Fiji water on hand to fill a mikvah. The person they were yelling at in that ad was SAG President Alan Rosenberg. Take a guess. The scathing rebuttal to the ad was written by entertainment super agent Ari Emanuel, Jew with Israeli parents, on the Huffington Post, which is owned by Ariana Huffington, not Jewish and has never worked in Hollywood. Ari Emanuel is the 
brother of Rahm Emanuel, who was the White House Chief of Staff during the Obama administration. The Jews are so dominant. I had to scour the trays to come up with six Gentiles in high positions in entertainment companies. When I called them to talk about their incredible advancement, five of them refused to talk to me, apparently out of fear of insulting Jews. Well, the Zionist network, that's who they were in fear of insulting. Anyway, it goes on. The sixth AMC president, Charles Collier, turned out to be Jewish. As a proud Jew, I want America to know about our accomplishment. Yes, we control Hollywood. Without this, you'd be flipping between the 700 Club and Davy and Goliath on TV all day. When you realise this, it's no wonder that there's so many references to Jewishness in Hollywood and American sitcoms and TV and film. The article continues. So I've taken it upon myself to reconvince America that Jews run Hollywood by launching a public relations campaign because that's what we do best. I'm weighing several slogans, including Hollywood, more Jewish than ever, Hollywood, from the people who brought you the Bible, and Hollywood, if you enjoy TV and movies, then you probably like Jews after all. Now, if someone said this who was not Jewish, they'd be called anti-Semitic, when here's a Jewish guy actually saying it. I called ADL chairman Abe Foxman, who was in Santiago, Chile, where he told me, to my dismay, he was not hunting Nazis. He dismissed my whole proposition, saying that the number of people who think Jews run Hollywood is still too high. The ADL poll, he pointed out, showed that 59% of Americans think Hollywood executives do not share the religious and moral values of most Americans, and 43% think the entertainment industry is waging an organised campaign to weaken the influence of religious values in this country. Well, the entertainment industry, through something called predictive programming, is promoting the agenda in the form of TV and film. And part of the agenda, as I've said before, is to remove culture of all kinds, as we've known it up to this point, and replace it with a monoculture based on the belief of the cult which controls Israel, which I talk about in an episode called All Roads Lead to Israel, episode 59, part 2. The article continues. The article continues. That's a sinister canard, Foxman said. Canard is a rumour, basically, without any substance. That's a sinister canard, Foxman said. It means they think Jews meet at Cantor's Deli on Friday mornings to decide what's best for the Jews. Foxman's argument made me rethink. I have to eat at counters more often. That's a very dangerous phrase, Jews control Hollywood. What is true is that there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood, he said. Instead of control, Foxman would prefer people say that many executives in the industry happen to be Jewish, as in all eight major film studios are run by many who happen to be Jewish. But Foxman said he is proud of the accomplishments of American Jews. I think Jews are disproportionately represented in the creative industry. They're disproportionate lawyers and probably medicine here as well he said he argues that this does not mean that jews make pro-jewish movies any more than they do pro-jewish surgery though other countries i've noticed are not so big on circumcision i appreciate foxman's concerns and maybe my life spent in a new jersey new york bay area la pro-semitic cocoon has left me naive but i don't care if americans think we're running the news media hollywood wall street or the government i just care that we get to keep running them Elite Zionist lobby groups in different countries like the Anti-Defamation League in America, the Anti-Defamation Commission in Australia, B'nai B'rith in Canada, and the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism here in Britain and others exist officially to protect Jewish people from discrimination, but in truth to use the claim of anti-Semitism to ironically defame people exposing Israel and elite Zionism for reasons I explained in episode 10. These groups are officially designated as charities, meaning they get the tax benefits of charities when they do nothing to warrant that status. Elite Zionist lobby groups are also very prominent in American politics, 
As I talked about in the last episode, American politics is owned by Israel and elite Zionism. The Rothschilds are the family dynasty behind elite Zionism, as I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel. I also explain in the second part of that two-part episode how another Silicon Valley is being created in Israel called Silicon Wadi or Silicon Vadi and the connection between American tech startups and companies and tech experts and Silicon Valley. In that episode, I also talk about the potential, and I'm sure in some cases more than potential, for Israeli control of computer systems worldwide. One question that he's asking, which always generates an immediate response of anti-Semitism, and a little more than a rolling of the eyes from me, Jewish people are an oppressed minority, we're told, and some Jewish people in Israel are treated disgracefully by the Israeli regime and live in poverty. But in general, we're told they're an oppressed minority. So why are so many of them in powerful positions? Elite Zionists who are not Jewish are in many key positions where Jewish people are not. Elite Zionism is run ultimately by the cult which controls Israel and is playing out its agenda without the vast majority even realising the cult exists. And not everybody, even within ultra-Zionism or elite Zionism, will know wider picture. Only a certain number will, in terms of why this is happening or why they should do this or why Israel is doing this or that. Only a certain number of them will. But the fact that elite Zionism is run ultimately by this cult and is playing out the cult's agenda is why people exposing this fact are targeted and why people even mildly criticising Israel are targeted, as I explained in episode 10. Zionist lobby groups and individuals claiming anti-Semitism, people exposing this fact, and merely questioning why it's the case that Jewish people and non-Jewish elite Zionists are so prevalent in key positions in society, in country after country, year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, are actually giving more credibility to the claim, because they're targeting the people exposing that fact is so over the top and uncalled for in many cases that it begs the question what are they trying to hide a heck of a lot is the answer however it's vital that people don't blame jewish people in general for all this because i'm not talking about jewish people or a jewish plot i'm talking about jewish and non-jewish elite zionists in positions of political corporate military intelligence power and decision making and the Sabbatean Frankist cult which controls both. People claiming it's all a Jewish plot are playing into the hands of elite Zionists, seeking to censor and throwing people off the scent of the real control, elite Zionism and the Sabbatean Frankist cult. Jewish and non-Jewish people need to come together in mutual understanding and support and call this out. The elite Zionist lobby groups can call one or two Jewish people self-haters and ludicrously anti-Semitic, and they can call non-Jewish people and investigating this and exposing it, anti-Semitic but they can't do it with a massive amount of people, especially a massive amount of Jewish people, because it obviously won't stick. In their desperation, their game plan will be unraveled, and then we can really start to ask questions and find answers about this enormous hoax perpetrated on people of all backgrounds, and none more so than Jewish people. And the next subject this week is coronavirus again this is in the daily mail un chief says coronavirus outbreak is a very dangerous situation well coronavirus is basically just a heavy flu and flu was always potentially dangerous anyway the article says the un secretary general said the coronavirus outbreak that began in china is not out of control but it is a very dangerous situation speaking in an interview with the associated press antonio guterres said the risks are enormous and we need to be prepared worldwide for that 
He added that a spread of the virus to countries with less capacity in their health service would require a great deal of international solidarity. Now, what that could mean is some form of world government, not officially world government, but that kind of idea, which will be about controlling when officially it will be countries coming together to combat the disease. It's just a possibility. Egypt recently reported its first case of the virus, raising fears of its spread to the African continent. The outbreak has infected more than 73,000 people globally. The World Health Organization has named the illness COVID-19, or COVID-19, referring to its origin late last year and the coronavirus that causes it. Of course, there's different strains of the virus as there usually is with the virus. China on Tuesday reported 1,886 new cases and 98 more deaths, raising the number of deaths in mainland China to 1,868 and the total number of confirmed cases to 72,436. However, it should be pointed out that, as I said in episode 64, how do you draw the line between the distinction of coronavirus and flu and Especially as when you look at the way they're telling people to protect themselves from coronavirus, it's exactly the same way as you protect yourself from the flu or any virus or illness. Wash your hands, all of that stuff. Nothing different. And I also pointed out in episode 64, China and how just living in China currently, especially in Wuhan and around that area, could cause illness on its own. The article continues... Travel to and from the worst hit central China region was associated with the initial cases of COVID-19 confirmed abroad, but Japan, Singapore and South Korea have identified new cases without clear ties to China or previously known patients raising concern of the virus spreading locally. A report saying the disease outbreak has caused mild illness in most people raised optimism among global health authorities. The UN chief was in Pakistan for a conference on 40 years of refugees fleeing neighbouring war-torn Afghanistan. Earlier in his four-day visit, Mr Guterres called on other countries to support Pakistan and show similar leadership in handling refugee flows in South Asia and around the world. And of course, that is... Some people have pointed out that there's a biological warfare lab in Wuhan. The lab is known as a Level 4 Biological Warfare Laboratory, meaning it has the capability to contain a virus, the kind of coronavirus. And it's been suggested that the Wuhan seafood market, the wet market, may not actually be where coronavirus started. This is an article in sciencemag.org. Wuhan seafood market may not be source of novel virus spreading globally. As confirmed cases of a novel virus surge around the world with worrisome speed, all eyes have so far focused on a seafood market in Wuhan, China, as the origin of the outbreak. But a description of the first clinical cases published in the Lancet and Medical Journal on Friday challenges that hypothesis. The paper, written by a large group of Chinese researchers from several institutions, offers details about the first 41 hospitalized patients who had confirmed infections with what has been dubbed 2019 novel coronavirus. 2019-NCOV. In the earliest case, the patient became ill on 1st December 2019 and had no reported link to the seafood market, the authors report. No epidemiological link was found between the first patient and later cases, they state. Their data also show that in total, 13 of the 41 cases had no link to the marketplace. That's a big number, 13, with no link, says Daniel Lucy, an infectious disease specialist at Georgetown University. Earlier reports from Chinese health authorities and the World Health Organization have said the first patient had on set of symptoms on the 8th of December 2019 and those reports simply said most cases had links to the seafood market which was closed on the 1st of January. Lucy says if the new data are accurate the first human infections must have occurred in November 2019 if not earlier because there was an incubation time between infection and symptoms surfacing. If so the virus possibly spread silently between people in Wuhan and perhaps elsewhere before the cluster of cases from the city's now infamous Huanan H-U-A-N-A-N 
seafood wholesale market was discovered in late December. The virus came into that marketplace before it came out of that marketplace, Lucy asserts. The Lancet paper's data also raised questions about the accuracy of the initial information China provided, Lucy says. At the beginning of the outbreak, the main official source of public information were notices from the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission. Its notices on 11th of January started to refer to the 41 patients as the only confirmed cases and the count remained the same until 18th of January. The notices did not state that the seafood market was the source, but they repeatedly noted that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission and that most cases linked to the market. Because the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission noted that diagnostic tests had confirmed these 41 cases by 10th of January, and officials presumably knew the case histories of each patient. China must have realised the epidemic did not originate in that Wuhan, Huanan seafood market, Lucy tells Science Insider. Lucy also spoke about his concerns in an interview published online by Science Speaks, a project of the Infectious Disease Society of America. Christian Anderson, an evolutionary biologist at the Scripps Research Institute, who has analysed sequences of 2019 NCOV to try to clarify its origin, says the 1st of December timing of the first confirmed cases was an interesting tidbit in the Lancet paper. The scenario somebody being infected outside the market and then later bringing it to the market it's one of three scenarios we have considered that is still consistent with the data he says it's entirely plausible given our current data and knowledge the other two scenarios that the origin was a group of infected animals or a single animal that came into that marketplace of course bats were mentioned at one point Anderson posted his analysis of 27 available genomes of 2019 NCOV on 25th of January on a virology research website. It suggests they had a most recent common ancestor, meaning a common source, as early as 1st of October 2019. Bing Cao of Capital Medical University, the corresponding author of the Lancet article and a pulmonary specialist wrote in an email to Science Insider that he and his co-authors appreciate the criticism from Lucy. Now it seems clear that the seafood market is not the only origin of the virus he wrote, but to be honest we still do not know where the virus came from. Lucy notes that the discovery of the coronavirus that causes Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, a sometimes fatal disease that occurs sporadically, came from a patient in Saudi Arabia in June 2012, although later studies traced it back to an earlier hospital outbreak of unexplained pneumonia in Jordan in April 2012. Stored samples from two people who died in Jordan confirmed they had been infected with the virus. Retrospective analyses of blood samples in China from people and animals, including vendors from other animal markets, may reveal a clear picture of where the 2019 NCOV originated, he suggests. might be a clear signal among the noise, he says. A very interesting article on informationclearinghouse.info features an interview with Dr. Francis Boyle, who is international law professor at the University of Illinois. He served as counsel to numerous governments such as Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Palestinian Authority. He's represented numerous national international bodies in the areas of human rights, war crimes and genocide, nuclear policy and biowarfare. He's written numerous books and one of those books is called Biowarfare and Terrorism and he drafted the US Domestic Implementing Legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention, known as the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, that was approved by both houses of the U.S. Congress and signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. Some people have pointed out that there is a biological warfare lab in Wuhan. The lab is known as a Level 4 Biological Warfare Laboratory, meaning it has the capability to contain a virus, the kind of coronavirus. And Dr. Boyle says that the Wuhan lab is a BSL-4 laboratory, BSL-4 laboratory, and... They are used to develop offensive biological warfare weapons with DNA genetic engineering. And he also agrees that the lab is the likely source of the coronavirus. And he says that the virus was weaponized by giving it a gain of function property or properties, which means it is more impactful on health than it would otherwise be. And he says the latest report 
as of February the 17th when this was posted, is that the virus is at a 15% fatality rate, which is more than SARS at 83% infection rate. The typical gain of function, he says, travels in the air so it can reach out maybe six feet or more from someone emitting a sneeze or a cough. Likewise, this is a specially designated World Health Organization research lab. And that's interesting because the World Health Organization is an agency of the United Nations, and the United Nations sits on land donated by the Rockefellers. Rockefellers were involved in the setup of the United Nations, and that would not have happened unless there was a benefit to the cult's agenda from doing so. And Dr. Boyle says what we're dealing with is an offensive biological warfare weapon came out of Wuhan BSL-4 lab. And he says that since 9-11, the United States has spent $100 billion on biological warfare research, with another $5 billion added on per year, about $5 billion. And that's interesting because I've mentioned before an organization called the Project for the New American Century. I talk about them in episode 61. They published a document in September 2000 calling for a series of regime changes, which I talk about in that episode. One of the countries the document called for regime change was China. A conflict with China has long been in the planning. U.S. military bases surround China, and that was revealed in a brilliant documentary by a mainstream journalist, John Pilger, who's a mainstream journalist, as mainstream journalist should be. The documentary was called The Coming War with China. I recommend watching it. And maybe the coronavirus is how the U.S. ultra-Zionist neocons plan to invade China. And I use the term ultra-Zionist because that's a term some people use to make the point when talking about extreme Zionists. I use the term elite Zionist to point out that I'm talking about Zionists in positions of political, corporate, organizational, military intelligence, financial, key positions of power as opposed to regular Zionism. As I've said before, there's more than one way to invade a country. There's more than one way to kick off World War III. And maybe this is how the US ultra-Zionist neocons plan to invade China. You don't have to do it with boots on the ground. And the project for the New American Century document also called for transforming biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Now, this doesn't prove anything, but it's worth pondering on, especially when you consider the fact that that organization was owned by the very same Israel-controlling cult, which ultimately owns the World Health Organization, an agency of the United Nations, as I said, and that the cult also owns the pharmaceutical cartel and major corporations. I've also talked before about 5G. I'll talk about 5G and its enormous and many implications for health in episodes 12 and 22, among other episodes. And 5G is being rolled out in Britain, America, and China. In fact, China are already talking about 6G, which will be even more disastrous for health. So what are the chances if some have suggested that at least some of these symptoms are not symptoms of the virus, but actually symptoms of 5G? It's worth pondering on, especially in China being the tech hub that it is. They are well ahead of the West with the smart cities agenda. Fundamentally involves 5G for reasons I've explained before. So I'm not going to say definitively the exact nature of coronavirus and what the whole situation is about because it's too early to say. Anyone who says they know is kidding themselves or kidding you. It's like the great quote attributed to a few different people, but the quote is either way. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying its shoelaces. There are, however, questions to ask and answer and interesting coincidences, which may be more than coincidences. So it's a developing story and one we need to watch very closely and ask questions beyond just what we're told in the media. But then that's usually the case anyway. One of the key questions to ask about any subject when events like this occur, big events or any subject, is who benefits? 
Who benefits from me believing this official narrative? Who benefits from this happening? Another way to ask that question is what does the cult running the world want? What do they gain by people believing it? What do they gain by this event happening? Well, in terms of China, they can justify turning China into a total totalitarian state, even more than it is now. And I've said before that the the reason why China is as far ahead as it is in terms of the cult's agenda and why it's so totalitarian compared to the West is that the China society is the blueprint for the society the cult wants to impose globally. And because it's so totalitarian, the authorities in China can just basically do whatever they want. Whereas in the West, they have to pay some kind of lip service to freedom and democracy. So China could end up being a total lockdown over the coronavirus. It justifies more of a totalitarian state in the West, potentially, coronavirus. Compulsory vaccination moves towards compulsory vaccination. I talk about vaccines in episode 44, part 2, and even more in the pay-per-view book. Divide and rule, dividing young and old, most vulnerable from least vulnerable, infected from non-infected, or claimed to be infected from non-infected. The reaction to the coronavirus scare, understandably fear, makes people suggestible which is perfect for the cult. And we need to look at the suggested solutions to the problem and see them as potentially attempts to advance the agenda and not attempts to really solve the problem. And the next subject this week is eugenics. This is in the Washington Times. Richard Dawkins slammed for saying, of course, eugenics would work. British evolutionary biologist and famed atheist Richard Dawkins sparked outrage on Twitter after he wrote that putting ideology and morality aside, eugenics or the selective breeding of humans would of course work in practice. It's one thing to deploy eugenics on ideological, political, moral grounds. Mr. Dawkins tweeted to his 2.8 million followers. It's quite another to conclude that it would not work in practice. Of course it would. It works for cows, horses, pigs, dogs and roses. Why on earth would it not work for humans? Facts ignore ideology. The tweet sparked a wave of criticism from both sides of the political aisle, with many people pointing out the racist history of the eugenics movement and how Adolf Hitler used it to justify the forced sterilization and mass murder of hundreds of thousands of Jews and others who were determined sick or defective. Mr. Dawkins attempted to further explain his argument, insisting that he deplores eugenics but nonetheless thinks it would work on humans just as it does on animals. For those determined to miss the point, I deplore the idea of a eugenic policy, he wrote. I simply said deploring it does not mean it would not work. Just as we breed cows to yield more milk, we could breed humans to to run faster or jump higher, but heaven forbid that we should do it. A eugenic policy would be bad. I'm combating the illogical step from X would be bad to so X is impossible, he added. It would work in the same sense as it works for cows. Let's fight it on moral grounds. Deny obvious scientific facts and we lose, or at best derail the argument. Mr. Dawkins' explanation did not go over well with users either. Defiant, he later called out the hunger for likes and Twitter nastiness against what he described as a rational argument. Well, Dawkins is correct when he says in theory that it's possible and that it would work but that we should not actually do it i talk in episode 53 part 2 about the fundamental role dna plays in human perception of reaction stunning when you see the depth of it dna is being mutated and impacted anyway through gmo which i talk about in episode 26 in this context wireless technological emissions and communication from wi-fi smartphones etc and 5g massively so and all the crap which passes for food and drink There is a reason why DNA is being mutated, and I answer that question in episode 26. Synthetic DNA, called GNA or PNA, is being developed already. A new synthetic human form is being developed. Nanotechnology, which I talk about in episode 42, 
is synthetic and most people have nanotechnology inside them and I explain how and why in episode 42 and it's all part of creating this new human form from within. Eventually the idea is that humans are created synthetically from scratch and this is where transgender comes in because the plan is to create a new human form which does not procreate. This is the real reason for the endless and ever-increasing promotion of transgender and fluid gender, etc. Eugenics is an operation of the Rockefeller family dynasty. They own an organisation called Planned Parenthood, which has been around for decades and is a eugenics operation, and is another step towards the end of the family unit, which is the plan. The Rockefellers paid for the study of a eugenicist called Ernst Rudin and a team he led at a German university. Rudin was Hitler's race purity expert. In the shadows beyond what we see in the public arena, the human form has been studied and understood at levels far beyond any public and mainstream scientific understanding. And it's been happening for a reason, because the synthetic form is where it's all leading. And the final subject this week is artificial intelligence. This is in the Daily Mail. EU proposes rules for artificial intelligence to limit risks. The European Union unveiled proposals Wednesday to regulate artificial intelligence that call for strict rules and safeguards on risky applications of the rapidly developing technology. The report is part of the bloc's wider digital strategy aimed at maintaining its position as the global pace setter on technological standards. Big tech companies seeking to tap Europe's fast and lucrative market, including those from the US and China, would have to play by any new rules that come into force. The EU's Executive Commission said it wants to develop a framework for trustworthy artificial intelligence. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen had ordered her top deputies to come up with a coordinated European approach to artificial intelligence and data strategy 100 days after she took office in December. We will be particularly careful where essential human rights and interests are at stake, von der Leyen told reporters in Brussels. Artificial intelligence must serve people and therefore artificial intelligence must always comply with people's rights. But the idea is not that it complies with people's rights, the idea is that it takes over. EU leaders keen on establishing technological sovereignty also released a strategy to unlock data from the continent's businesses and the public sector so it can be harnessed for further innovation in artificial intelligence. Officials in Europe, which doesn't have any homegrown tech giants, hope to catch up with the US and China by using the bloc's vast and growing trove of industrial data for what they anticipate is a coming wave of digital transformation. They also warn that even more regulation for foreign tech companies is in store with the upcoming Digital Services Act, a sweeping overhaul of how the bloc treats digital companies, including potentially holding them liable for illegal content posted on their platforms. A steady stream of Silicon Valley tech bosses, including Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Google CEO Sundar Pichai and Microsoft President Brad Smith, have visited Brussels in recent weeks as part of apparent lobbying efforts. It is not us that need to adapt to today's platforms, it is the platforms that need to adapt to Europe, said Thierry Breton, Commissioner for the Internal Market. That is the message that we deliver to CEOs of these platforms when it comes to see us. The article continues, if the tech companies are not able to build systems for our people, then we will regulate and we are ready to do this in a digital services act to the end of the year, he said. The EU's report, the article continues, said clear rules are needed to address high-risk AI systems such as those in recruitment, healthcare, law enforcement or transport, which should be transparent, traceable and guaranteed human oversight. Other artificial intelligence systems could come with labels so defined that they are in line with EU standards. Artificial intelligence uses computers to process large sets of data and make decisions without human input. It is used, for example, to trade stocks in financial markets or in some countries to scan faces in crimes to find criminal suspects. While it can be used to improve healthcare, make farming more efficient or combat climate change, it also brings risks. It can be unclear what data artificial intelligence systems work on. 
Facial recognition systems could be biased against certain social groups, for example. There were also concerns about privacy and the use of the technology for criminal purposes, the report said. Human-centric guidelines for artificial intelligence are essential because none of the positive things will be achieved if we distrust the technology, said Margaret Stagger, the Executive Vice President overseeing the EU's digital strategy. Another proposal is which are open for public consultation until May the 19th. EU authorities want to be able to test and certify the data used by the algorithms that power artificial intelligence in the same way they check cosmetics, cars and toys. It's important to use unbiased data to train high-risk artificial intelligence systems so they can avoid discrimination, the Commission said. Specifically, AI systems could be required to use data reflecting gender, ethnicity, and other possible grounds of prohibited discrimination. Other ideas include preserving data to help trace any problems and having AI systems clearly spell out their capabilities and limitations. Users should be told when they're interacting with a machine, not a human, why humans should be in charge of the system and have the final say on decisions, such as rejecting an application for welfare benefits, the report said. EU leaders said they also wanted to open a debate on when to allow facial recognition and remote identification systems, which are used to scan crowds to check people's faces to those on a database. Is considered the most intrusive form of the technology and is prohibited in the EU except in special cases. Well, the AI introduction into society is not about complementing human life with the greater capacities and possibilities of AI. It's about taking over human life and human society so humans become slaves to AI and, for reasons explained in episodes 10 and 11, become AI. We can see already the effect on the jobs market of AI and automation. I watched a brilliant documentary on this recently, which I recommend, called The AI Race, in series two of a show called Catalyst. The documentary looks at the various ways AI has taken over society. It's available to watch on CuriosityStream, a website with documentaries on various subjects. If you go to curiositystream.com forward slash what if, you can get a month free. You can get a month free. It's worth doing just to watch this documentary, which looks at just how much AI will transform human society. I should say, I get no commission for saying that. <laughs> Just a documentary I watched and found interesting. In the AI society, where people are jobless because of AI and automation, a universal basic income will be offered. And I've talked about that in episode 22. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Facebook frontman Mark Zuckerberg has suggested a universal income as has Elon Musk, who claims that artificial intelligence could be the end of the human race as we know it. Correct. But then founds a company called Neuralink to connect the human brain to artificial intelligence. He's a co-founder of Tesla Cars, developing driverless cars controlled by AI, which I've talked about in episode 6. And is sending up satellites to beam Wi-Fi and 5G in low Earth orbit at the Earth to create the very smart grid that AI will run eventually. Unless there's another reason for his obvious contradictions, I will see him as a good cop to Google executive and Singularity University co-founder Ray Kurzweil as a bad cop. Singularity is the term given to the point where AI exceeds human intelligence. The documentary gives the usual way off timescale of 50 or more years before you reach that point. When all along the technological capability exists now, it just needs to be rolled out and an infrastructure needs to be built to facilitate that but even the capacity to do, to do that already exists because the technology we see in the public arena is light years behind the underground bases and most exclusive levels of the military intelligence networks where this technology is just sitting there waiting to be revealed through through some tech company with a cover story that it was some inventor at the tech company or who sold it to the tech company who developed it when it was just lying there all along 
human-to-human interaction is being destroyed by AI and technology, and this is making way for human-to-machine interaction. AI assistants like Alexa and Siri, seed funded by DARPA by the way, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, are merging the brain ever more with artificial intelligence, even on that basic level, and getting people used to delegating tasks to AI, which gets them used to AI taking over their lives increasingly. Another avenue for AI is pre-crime technology, which apparently can identify criminals before they commit crime. I'll talk more about the wider context of pre-crime surveillance AI-run technology in episode 35 and the absolutely fundamental role it's designed to play in this AI society. Human society is seriously compartmentalised. I explain the structure in the pay-per-view book, but it's enough to say here that because of this compartmentalization most people working within these tech companies and this tech movement won't have a clue what they're actually playing a part in they'll just be fixated on the sales pitch one thing that hit me watching this documentary was discussions around a table or in other situations where questions were asked about glitches of the technology or lacking the human interaction in different areas but the one question nobody ever thought to ask was what if the ai is malevolent I say, from a vast amount of information and evidence over many years now, it's pointed to this being the case, that ultimately this technological revolution is leading to humanity and human society being controlled by a malevolent AI. If you watch the documentary and you see these discussions, people sitting around and having fairly civil discussions, that's not how this technology is rolled out and this tech revolution is planned. That's not how it works. Anyone who thinks it is is massively missing the point. Corporate heads and tech talking heads are not sitting around discussing the most effective and safest way to implement this technology. On one level, that may happen, but ultimately, the AI and tech revolution is coldly calculated, long, long planned and desperately sinister. All roads lead to Israel will place that claim into context. And this is why it's so important to understand the mentality running human society, which all roads lead to Israel will also explain. That there is an agenda for human society and what that agenda is because then you don't get taken in by the sales pitch and the official explanations. You can see situations from an expanded panorama perspective. The mainstream media keeps us focused on subjects as unconnected, random and isolated. Once you know those two things, mentality and agenda, which I've laid out in detail during the course of pay-per-view, from 2018 onwards, you can see the hidden tapestry of human society. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.